in collaboration with the Alameda County Bar Association, this is Love Thy Lawyer, where we talk with members of the ACBA about their lives and legal careers. I'm Lewis Goodman, a host of the LTL podcast, and yes, I'm a member of the Alameda County Bar Association. Good afternoon. I'm Lewis Goodman, host of the Love Thy Lawyer podcast. Welcome to the Barristers Club of the Alameda County Bar Association. Today, we're honored to be interviewing attorney James McWilliams. He is now a privately practicing attorney. James started in the Alameda County Public Defender's Office on July 15, 1970. During a long and stellar career, he tried every conceivable type of criminal case from low-level misdemeanors to death penalty murders. He has also served the criminal defense bar through his work as chair of the California Public Defenders Association and chair of the criminal law section of the California State Bar. In addition, he has volunteered countless hours to the Alameda County Bar Association and for many years served on the court-appointed supervising committee. He has mentored numerous attorneys, both in and out of the public defender's office, and his intellectual generosity is unequaled. After his appearance here, he is open to your further questions about specific cases or situations. On a personal note, I had the privilege of trying two cases against James when I was a young deputy district attorney. As a result, I learned a great deal and we became good friends. James McWilliams, welcome to the Barristers Club of the Alameda County Bar Association and the Love Thy Lawyer podcast. Thank you so much, Lewis. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I really uh, do appreciate your joining us for this program. What, what we're very much trying to do is get the attorneys in the Alameda County Bar Association an opportunity to meet each other, talk to each other, and open, opening up some networking opportunities. James, where are you from originally? Well, I was born in Flower Fifth Avenue Hospital, Manhattan, New York. Grew up in Queens. Then we moved over to New Jersey, first Milburn and then Short Hills. That's where I grew up. It's interesting that we didn't know each other there, but that's the town that I grew up in as well. And we've talked about that. But we went to different high schools. You went to a very interesting high school, Newark Academy. For some reason, I won a complete scholarship, five-year scholarship, to go to Newark Academy, a school that was established by George Washington. It was down in Newark, New Jersey. I had to ride a train. And on the train... You had to wear a necktie going to school every day. And it was all all uh, boys' school, which had its uh, drawbacks. But it was a nice adventure. Now, after you graduated from Newark Academy, where did you go to college? Ended up going to Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. I was married and had one son, later two. And so that's where I went to college. I studied sociology as an undergraduate. And then after college, I realized it was impossible to make any money at a job. So I just carried on with law school. Did you go directly to law school after you got out of Ohio State? Yes, I went to Ohio State Law School. So it was right on campus. And what prompted you to start thinking about being a lawyer? Probably because after I got out of undergraduate, I couldn't get any job more profitable than being a bank teller. 
at that time was a very modest job. And I could go to the law school with scholarships and other things. So it's actually, oddly enough, more economical to go to the professional school than to start work. How did you happen to go from Columbus, Ohio to Alameda County, California? Well, during those years, California was so exciting. In the chief justice was a guy named Trainer, just Chief Justice Trainer, who lived in Berkeley. He was just such an exceptional attorney and judge. And there were so many, frankly, exciting activities going on in Berkeley. And I had been accepted to transfer to Bolt, but my father wasn't willing to afford that. So I came after law school and we lived actually initially in San Lorenzo. And my wife got a teaching job at Colonial Acres Elementary School. And I started working initially with a major firm in San Francisco with View of the Bay and all that. And I realized then for a while I worked for Mel Belli. That was fun. But at some point I realized that even though I might be able to make more money working in a financially oriented firm, that it was so much more rewarding to me to work for the public defender's office where I came in contact with real people, many of which had complicated life problems. And it was just a a much more satisfying job. So I stayed there for many, many years. How did you happen to get into the Alameda County uh, public defender's office to begin with? Just looking around for a job that paid some more compensation than I was getting. I wrote to both San Francisco and Alameda County. San Francisco, the public defender was a guy named Mancuso, sort of an odd guy, favored the death penalty of all odd things for a public defender. And in Alameda County, it started out a guy named John Nunes, but then he was replaced by Jim Hooley, and Jim brought me on board. What did you really like about practicing in the public defender's office? I mean, you stayed there quite a while. You could represent people that needed representation. And money wasn't a factor. I always felt complicated when I went into private practice after I left the public defender's office. Every case I got always involved questions of how much funds should I personally commit to the case? Because many times the clients on serious criminal cases just don't have the assets. They don't have the funds. And felt very nice in the fact that I could fully defend people without making money a factor in the consideration of what needs to be done. If someone was just coming out of college, would you recommend to a young person a career choice of going into law and specifically going into a public defender's office? I would. I think it's was very satisfying, especially because you, you're connected with human beings. And many times human beings that are really truly in need of assistance. Some of them were kind of difficult to have as clients, but that was just the nature of what was asked of you. And I haven't known very few, I've known very few people that served as public defenders that didn't enjoy it. Now, the prosecutor side is also very important, but they don't usually get as close to the reality of a client as you do from the defense point of view. And I thought that was 
more rewarding, at least for me. How did the practice of law meet or differ from expectations that you had going into it? Well, because I had gone to law school, mainly because they couldn't get a better paying job, I didn't have a lot of expectations. And although I excelled at law school in certain fields like negotiable instruments and civil procedure, those didn't turn out to be topics that came up very often at the public defender's office. But it just seemed like once I got into it, I was very satisfied. Is there anything that you know now that you really wished you'd known before you got into being a public defender? It's a hard job. It's a very taxing job if you do it the way you should, it should be done. So it takes a lot of hours, especially if you're handling serious cases. But the reward is the drama and the fact that, frankly, in criminal law, whether you're a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, it lets you do so many things. You get to present trials, arguments, juries. It's an amazingly satisfying thing because you have that much involved with your lifetime work. Well, speaking of trials and actually picking juries and such, I know you've tried any number of very serious cases. I'm wondering if you could Tell us about uh, a particular case that comes to mind. Well, a sad case was the Robert case. I won't give his first name. That would be inappropriate. But he was involved with the uh, shooting death of an Oakland police officer. It was a death penalty case. There was an enormous amount of pressure on the case on both sides. Prosecutor was Bob Platt, very nice man. And my co-counsel was Julia Blackwell, wonderful public defender who subsequently died of cancer, and uh, it was high drama right to the end. And I can remember preparing for the penalty phase and calling up Mr. Roberts' mother, who had raised him, and said, you need to come down here. I need you as a witness. And she said, Mr. Mac Williams, I'm not coming down. And I said, why is that? She said, because of the Dow. I said, Mrs. Robert, you mean the Dow Jones average? She said, yes, the Dow is down, so I'm not showing up. A lot of times you were working with people that you needed that had their limitations and they had their own pride for whatever reason. But fortunately, on that case, the jury found not to be true three special circumstances. So an amazing verdict. My client was then allowed to possibly get re paroled at some point in his life. I think he's already been paroled. It was an amazingly magical experience. It does feel good when you're able to really do something for an individual, regardless of what they may have done to get themselves into the circumstance that they're at. That's true. And of course, I lost many of the cases. It wasn't just a one-sided arrangement, but it was all very each of them was fascinating, and each was a challenge. Do, do you think that the legal system is fair? I think it's as fair as it can be. In other words, I think the people that serve on jurors, juries try to do their best. But it's odd that when I did some educational programs for the CPDA, we would bring in jurors and have mock trials and then we would have them go deliberate and listen to them through a uh, two-way radio transmission. 
And almost always you found that whatever the lawyers had argued, whatever they had promoted, was given very little attention by these jurors. They had their own thoughts about how the case should be resolved. Did the jurors understand the evidence? Did they look at the evidence? They looked at it from their own personal point of view. So it made it clear that selecting a jury was very important to be sensitive and aware of the personalities of the people that are going to serve on your jury. You've talked to me about a concept that you've described as cross-examination in the streets. Can, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, a lot of lawyers, they're very busy with their caseload, and they wait to interview, let's say, the witnesses, perhaps at a preliminary hearing. But what they don't realize is that by the time the witness is prepared to do the preliminary hearing, they've sat down with opposing counsel who has corrected some mistakes that they may have in their mind about what happened. So they might say, oh, yeah, I remember the guy had a blue hat. And the prosecutor looks down in his statement and finds that the witness had said a red hat. So the prosecutor shows the statement to the individual. And then sometimes the person says, oh, I see it. I guess it was red. But if you take the energy and go out to where the witnesses are, with always with an investigator, you might find that you're cross-examining, in other words, questioning witnesses that are important in your case without them being prepared to testify. So occasionally, it's very profitable in defending someone who have done that. Death penalty cases, there is a a great deal of preparation. There's a great uh, deal of emotion practice. And you've talked to me about the notion that much of what is done in the death penalty world can be trickled down into less serious offenses and used very effectively for the defense of people who are accused of crimes in all kinds of circumstances. I'm wondering if you could address that a little bit. Yes, many, for many years, I went to the CACJ, CPDA death penalty seminar in Mon- mostly Monterey, California. I also was involved in the death penalty college, which we created at Santa Clara University as a training ground for people that were just about to start their first case. And you could see a lot of motions evolved that were appropriate for doing indefinitely case. And here are some of them. One was a motion for the jury information that the prosecution has that they're not sharing with the defense. It's called the Murdershaw motion. It would be a motion to federalize all the objections so that if you made a local state objection, it would be deemed to also raise the federal issue. Third one was to make sure that if you made in limine motions, that those motions would be binding and not have to be reasserted before the jury. These were all very common death penalty cases, motions, but I would file those in every case I tried. And it was often to my benefit because one of the responsibilities of the defense lawyer is to make a record that protects the client, not only during the trial, but if convicted later on. 
This podcast is presented and supported by the Alameda County Bar Association. ACBA provides a wide range of certified continuing legal educational programs, networking opportunities, and social events. If you are a member of ACBA, thank you. If you are not yet a member, we hope you will consider joining this organization that is by, for, and in support of practicing attorneys. And now, back to our interview. What if you came into some real money? came into several billion dollars, three, four billion dollars. What, what, if anything, would you change about the way you live your life? That's an interesting question. And I just thank God that never happened because I think those people that are blessed with that gift of funds lose all sense of their contribution in life. Like one of the things I was able to do while as a public defender in Alameda County, is we had a special Law Day Award named after one of the great justices of our Supreme Court, Alan Broussard, was an award for humanitarian activity. We brought a number of the local judges to a Law Day presentation by the Alameda County Bar Association and let them speak and then applauded their contribution. It included the likes of Judge Wilmot Sweeney and Clint White and Stan Gold and Joe Carriage and it was a delightful thing to be a part of. And I worked that out with Judge Leo Dorado and we just really enjoyed it. It was great. We also I also worked on a program for getting Bay Area minority students who were in law school placed with prestigious firms so that they would have a chance to get to know each other. And that was a multi-county event. And we would interview the students and try to place them with good firms, many of which eventually got jobs. And it really ended up expanding the diversity that we have in our legal profession. I thought that was all very good. That was the, uh, the Bay Area Summer Clerkship Program. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And how did that come about? It was started in Santa Clara County, but I got involved with it at that point. And frankly, it may be the only true award that Alameda County has ever gotten at a bar convention because they acknowledged this program and awarded all the counties that were involved a special award for diversity when, when you're dealing with a judge, with opposing counsel, with a deputy DA, what sort of kind of personal considerations do you think are really important in, in, in terms of, of, of dealing with people in authority when you're representing a criminal defendant who really has very little power in the circumstances? I think what's major importance is to not simply view yourself as some facilitator to let a case move along, but to make a positive contribution. How do you do that? Number one, I would get the clients to sign many waivers so I could get their juvenile record. I could get their prior probation reports. And those things would give me insight on the type of sentencing that this person might be facing. I would try to think of ways that I could get the client to expand their life in positive ways that would be marketable 
and might keep him out of jail. We had a judge in Oakland, Horace Wheatley, great guy. He was always fishing for something he could do to cause the clients to bend away from a life of crime and poverty into a life of productivity and benefit to them. He was amazing. Do you recall anything specific that Judge Wheatley would... He'd make, the, he'd make the prostitutes and the petty thieves go to Laney College. And, of course, <laughs> Laney College is a place where you can learn a lot of skills, not just intellectual skills, but also trade skills. And then if they didn't show a proper attendance record, he'd remand them. And, of course, the lawyer would be begging and pleading that he not do that. But you can see that his goal was to fire up an incentive. The person, rather than just to picking up trash on the freeway, would do things that might positively change their lives. I'm sure he did for many people. And it was always entertaining, frankly. Let's say you had a magic wand. You could change one thing in the legal system or in the world in general. What, what would that one thing be that you would like to change? Well, in the legal system, there were... The reality of some of our courts, especially misdemeanor courts, where they are overwhelmed with case files, prosecutors are overwhelmed with litigation. And once in a while, you'll find a judge, and I would think Carol Brosnahan is a good example, where she would remember the various people that passed through her court. She would try to intervene and try to make them not just a file folder, not just somebody who has to get their case processed, but to make a difference in their life by trying to encourage them to do something positive. All right. Well, what I would like to do is, since we do have a few other people on the call, I'd like to see if anybody else has some questions. Jason, you're there. I see you on, on the call. Could you unmute and share any question or comment that you might have uh, for me or for James? Obviously, you know, no matter how much we would like, we can't win every case and we can't prevail in every endeavor that we try. And I'm just wondering, is there anything that you can share uh, about a particularly trying or, or particularly challenging time that you had to deal with where ultimately you did not prevail for your client and how you coped with that? Well, good question, Jason. One thing, always make sure that you make a request and get that sentencing report to your possession as soon as possible. Make sure you read it and have deleted from it anything that's inappropriate, things like that. To get their family down there, to get people to write letters, it's so easy to get the family to write letters, but when they're writing letters on behalf of their loved one or their family member, that gives you something positive to argue. Look, look at how much this person is loved and look, these people are willing to help him get a job. And so it's trying to be proactive on the sentencing part. You know, the probation department is overworked. Often they don't make much of a contribution to a realistic evaluation of our clients. You can stand up there and you can add things that are in their favor. Because there certainly will be things that are on the negative side, badly enough. 
So those are some comments I'd make about that, Jason. James McWilliams, thank you so much for joining us today, the Alameda County Bar Association and the Love Thy Lawyer podcast. As always, it's a pleasure talking to you. I always learn something when I talk to you and appreciate you doing it. Good to see you. So it's so nice that you do this, and it's great that you're letting people understand some of their fellow lawyers in the field. I think it's great what you're doing. That's it for today's edition of Love Thy Lawyer in collaboration with the Alameda County Bar Association. Please visit the lovethylawyer.com website where you can find links to all of our episodes. Also, please visit the Alameda County Bar Association website at acbanet.org where you can find more information about our support of the legal profession, promoting excellence in the legal profession, and facilitating equal access to justice. Special thanks to ACBA staff and members, Kaylin Dalen, Saeed Randall, Hadassah Hayashi, Vincent Tong, and Jason Leong. Thanks to Joel Katz for music, Brian Matheson for technical support, and Tracy Harvey. I'm Lewis Goodman. I can remember going to Hayward one time. There was a sentencing there. And looking over at the lawyer and the client, and the client had a most inappropriate T-shirt on. And it just was like the lawyer didn't understand that they're making a presentation. They're hoping to sell the discretion of a judicial officer Give a person a break, give them a chance to expand their life in positive ways.